when someone is taken advantage of, it should create a response of anger. That should be the emotion. It's a real emotion. But the devil would have a swing to either side of the pendulum where you are controlled by your anger, you fly off the handle, you're driven by what you're angry about, or you're completely numb to a situation. He'll swing you to either side. Doesn't care as long as you're out of control because you're out of control in each way. Welcome to Refuge Podcast, a weekly Bible study for young adults at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. Amen. All right. Well, we are currently going through the book of Psalms. Uh, The book itself is called Psalms because it's made up of multiple psalm. Like each psalm is one. You put an S on it, it's Psalms, right? It's right. It's the culmination. The book of Psalms is broken up into five hymnals. These are books of prayer and praise. Um, and so each one is broken up into five different volumes. Tonight we're still in the first volume uh, here in chapter four. And tonight we're going to be looking at love, anger, and justice. Those three topics are covered in in these verses tonight, but the book of Psalms is a book of both prayer and praise, like we said, and it does an excellent job of putting so many of our own emotions into words. And these Psalms are no different in the sense that uh, they they help to create a, a place for us to communicate things that perhaps we can't communicate with words. Um, David is writing these Psalms specifically that we're going to cover tonight, uh, and there's many different authors uh, to the book of Psalms, but these are specifically attributed to David. Um, but one of the emotions that we want to talk about is anger. And I think a lot of times we don't talk about emotion as an anger or, or an anger as an emotion. That's what I meant to say. Um, but I have, I have emotions, but they all come out in one emotion, anger. So if I'm sad, it's, you won't know it. It's covered by anger. Can I get an amen in the house? Anyone else that way? Like you're not, there's, there's different things beneath what's really going on, but most of it is seen through the emotion of anger. Um, someone once said, if you're not angry, then you're not paying attention. And, and so tonight we're going to look at, in light of all the things that have been going on in our world up in, up in the recent days, shootings, needless violence, um, it's natural to have the emotion of anger. It's a part of of who we are as people. But how is, and what we're going to try and connect tonight is how is a God, a God of love and total just and, and totally just simultaneously? What do we do when we are angry? What do we do when our anger cries for justice, but justice is delayed? These are all things that David experienced Um, personally. So chapter four, verse one, it says, hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness, you have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. And the Lord will hear when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. 
Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. We all feel the emotion of anger, but at various times we feel sadness, grief, frustration, excitement, happiness, and of course, anger. Such feelings come naturally and not, are not sinful in and of themselves. Emotions are not sinful in and of themselves. There was a people group called the Stoics that thought all emotion was evil. And so um, someone who's very uh, stoic, right? Straight face, no emotion. You've ever met someone like that? Um, perhaps. My, my own family, there's an array of different emotions where my brothers, I have three brothers, and all of us are very different people. There is an echo on this microphone. No? <laughs> oh my gosh, there's like a voice in my head. Anyway, the, the, I could hear like, wah, wah, wah. It, like, maybe it's just me preaching to myself. Come on, self. No, it doesn't matter. Here's where, we, here's where we're going. Anyway, my brother is extremely stoic. He has one emotion, it's anger, and that's it. That's all I've ever seen. Whereas the rest of us have an array of different emotions. But emotion, however, is not sinful. It's not wrong to have emotions. Emotions are God-given. God is an emotional God. God has joy. God feels, uh, obviously, in his son, he felt pain. There, there's emotion within the God that we serve, and we are created in his image, after all. And so God gets angry. There's an anger in which God feels as well. There's righteous indignation. But emotion is internal and not directed against people. Action is external and can be directly positive, directed positively or negatively towards others. Emotions are given to us by God, but they are never supposed to drive our actions. If you could picture in a car when you have lights on your dashboard that come on, right? It's an indication of something that's going on with the engine, right? The oil light comes on. Probably means you need oil. Your tire sensor comes on. It means that you're, you need air in your tires. Uh, the, all the lights come on and it says, stop, oh my God. Like your car is breaking down. All the lights are flashing. It means that there is something wrong with the engine. It, it's never, those lights on the dashboard are never the, are, are to drive or, or push the car in a direction. It tells us that there's something wrong inside of it. Same with the human heart and the human condition. Our emotions are given to us by God like lights on a dashboard. They indicate what is going on in the heart. They're never meant to be the driving force behind what we do, right? And we're going to get to that, that whole section where David follows his heart and ends up in a lot of trouble. The world's advice is believe in yourself and follow your heart. It's <laughs> terrible advice. That's horrible advice, right? Believe in yourself and follow your heart. Do you know that even the world, I think a common grace, a common grace that, gives, that God gave to humanity, one is, is to, to know love and to know joy, to know happiness. Regardless if you're saved or not, you can experience love in some way. You can give love and have it as well. But one of the common graces I believe that God has given to all is the capacity for faith, right? The world preaches faith all the time. Believe in yourself. 
Believe in humanity. Believe, I think it was a slogan of a politician recently. Like, believe in what? It's a common grace to put faith into something. Faith means to put your weight onto it, to trust it. But the Christian puts their faith into something that matters and is lasting and is real. That never lets down. Okay, we're, we're putting our faith in God. That's why Jesus said, beware the faith or beware the leaven of the Pharisees. It was this leaven of believing in self and what self could accomplish. In, in the keeping of the law, and he says, beware of that kind of trust and fulfillment in that thing. Because that kind of faith is not going to get you to heaven. In the same way, our emotions are given to us as a way to teach us and to cultivate our life, but never to drive us towards something. My emotion, especially when it comes to anger, and that's what David is saying, be angry. Like, it's a radical saying, and it stokes me on fire. Like, yes, finally, someone can tell me to be angry. I love it. I love being angry. It's, and, sorry, but it, it, the encouragement, like, be angry, meaning it's a natural thing. It, it should, there are things that should make us angry. When someone is oppressed, when someone is taken advantage of, when someone is needlessly killed or experienced violence in some way, there is a, a natural expression that should be anger on our part. It should make us angry. When someone is taken advantage of, it should create a response of anger. That should be the emotion. It's a real emotion. But the devil would have a swing to either side of the pendulum where you are controlled by your anger you fly off the handle, you're driven by what you're angry about, or you're completely numb to a situation. He'll swing you to either side. Doesn't care as long as you're out of control, because you're out of control in each way. So what David is encouraging us, he says, be angry. Yes, it is the right response in a lot of different situations. But what you do after that can be sin. The passage follows Paul's teaching about the new nature that in Ephesians chapter 4 that we embrace through the Holy Spirit by faith in Jesus Christ. I've been given a new nature. Ephesians 4, 17 through 24 talks about it. If we become angry for, for some reason, we experience the involuntary emotion or passion of anger. We are not to allow it to prompt sinful actions. And we do not stay angry. We do not dwell on it. We deal with it quickly in constructive and God-honoring ways. So it does not grow stronger and produce bitterness in our lives. The biblical admonition is to deal with anger on the same day as the provocation. To deal with it then and there. Before we go to sleep that night, we should have taken positive steps to find a solution to the problem and to alleviate the anger. And that's what he says. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. We are, we are, or we all allow our anger to get the best of us at times. And I am going to say 90% of the time, my anger gets the best of me. As a father of four wonderful, beautiful, sinful human beings <laughs> who never remember where their shoes are <laughs> and lose at least one, 
I allow my anger to get the best of me sometimes. It's who we are. We're fallen. And this is something that God, by his spirit, sanctifies out of us. Sanctifies out of us. There are things in this world, guys, if you're not angry, then yeah, you're not paying attention. There should be things that make you angry or make you upset. What you do after that really defines, um, it defines your walk with the Lord and where you are with the Lord. We naturally want to retaliate. Oh, man, right? Yeah. It's in all of us to like, you know, it's biblical, eye for an eye. But your eye, like you, what someone has done to you tenfold, a thousandfold. May the wrath of God be poured out through his servant, me. It's like, you know, extend my hand or whatever. I'm saved, but my backhand isn't or whatever. Like we, we, we love like retaliation. Is, is the number one response anytime. If you're playing dodgeball for crying out loud and someone gets you out, you're like, 62. I like wearing a number. I remember, that's the one. Retaliation, right? Retaliation. We want to fix the problem in the fastest way. But when our response involves rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, we have crossed a line. We have sinned in our anger and given the, div the devil a foothold. Um, sometimes long after we should have moved on, we harbor a desire to revisit the wound and hang on the anger, right? It's called like the after party of anger. Like, let's talk about it with someone. I need to talk about my anger. Man, this Bible study stinks. Because this is what I do, like every day. Like I come home and I'm like, honey, let me just talk to you about what I'm angry about. Step one, and I have a journal, and I like wrote it down. I'm like, here's what I'm angry about, and here's everything that's going on. This only leads, guys, to bitterness. Bitterness, the Bible says, is rottenness in our bones. It eats you from the inside out. We must yield to the Holy Spirit and trust in his power to overcome such sin. That's why David says, offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. Put your trust in the Lord. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, in his wisdom, had some practical things to say about how to handle anger. Proverbs 14, 29. And this, if you look up on the board, they won't be there. So just Proverbs 14, 29, if you're writing these down. He who is slow to wrath has great understanding, but he who is impulsive exalts folly. Proverbs 15, 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Uh, Proverbs 15, 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up conflict, but a man slow to anger calms strife. In Proverbs 16, 32, it says, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Meditate upon your own heart and be still, he says, and trust in the Lord. Anger can be one of those things that, yes, it is a right emotion in some ways. In a lot of ways, it's the right thing to feel. But what you do afterwards is where the devil can get a foothold in us and cause bitterness in us. And that's, that's something that takes root and has to be pulled up from the root, the Bible says. So we need to take control under the power of the Holy Spirit of those things that cause anger. There are many who say, he says in verse 6, who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. 
even in David's day, he's like, is there anything good in this world? Like, is anyone going to report on anything good? Like, show me something good today. You can't, is what, what he's saying here. But he says, but I see it every day in my God. I see it every day in my God. As I look to him, I see what is good. I lift up the light of your countenance upon us, Lord, he says. Psalm chapter 5, this is classified as an imprecatory psalm. An imprecation is a curse that invokes misfortune upon someone. Imprecatory, which is a hard word to say, imprecatory psalms are those in which the author imprecates, that is, he calls down calamity, destruction, and God's anger and judgment on his enemies. Aren't you glad you came to church tonight? God's anger and judgment, yes! When, when studying these psalms, we have to be careful that we don't see God as just some giant bully in the sky who's like, who do you want me to crush today? Like, I am, I am all for you. The other day I was leaving my son's um, Little League game, and it was hot, like it always is. And there was a long line. If you've ever been on that street, a la pause, that turns on to Camino Capistrano, it's always backed up. It doesn't matter what time of the day, there's like ghost trains. And so the, you know, like everyone's trying to get and And I'm in line waiting my turn. Meanwhile, my son is playing in another game across town that I'm trying to get to, okay? Try to be a good dad here, right? Try to be there, videotape, be a good father, all stuff. And, and a gap then forms between me and the car in front of me. And, and I notice this gap is like, the line is moving. My joy is, is beginning to increase as the line is diminishing until a Tesla driving moron <laughs> fills the gap and to my dismay, has a Calvary cross sticker on the back of his car. And my little son's in the back of the car and he goes, ooh, daddy. And I'm like, son, close your eyes. <laughs> Don't you look at what's about to happen. No, just kidding. But immediately there's retaliation. I want to clip the back of him and spin him out into the train tracks. It's the wrong emotion. <laughs> Call down fire upon this car. Not only are you driving cheaper than I am as you are in your electric vehicle and I am slumming it in my V8 that as we sit here is costing me $45. You have the nerve to then cut me off. <laughs> If you're new here, it's not always like this. It's much calmer and the grace of God is extended. However, this is what an imprecatory Psalms looks like. I have been wronged. Therefore, God, smite them. Smite them. Kick their teeth in, God. Like, this is the, you'll read Psalms like these, and it's throughout, throughout these books. And what, what is happening is there's a real emotion of calling out, like, God, justice for me. Justice, God. And these people that they're calling justice onto, like who they want it to, to be um, carried out, their prayers of God keeping his justice. Like, God, this is who you are. You said that those that would curse your people, you would curse. You said they're calling on like God's promise uh, in the Old Testament. 
They're prayers that keep God's justice, his sovereignty, and protection in mind. And God's people had suffered much at the hands of these who opposed them, including the Hittites, the Amorites, the Philistines, the Babylonians. I mean, these people were cruel to God's people. And these groups were not only enemies of Israel, but they were also enemies of God. They were degenerate and ruthless and conquerors who, who had repeatedly tried and failed to destroy the Lord's chosen people. In writing the imprecatory Psalms, the authors sought vindication on God's behalf as much as they, they sought their own. But God, as we read in the Old Testament, was not only a God of justice, God was a God of mercy and grace Zach, you turd. <laughs> Two weeks in a row. As we saw in the book of Jonah, if there was ever a people that were more deserving of God's wrath and judgment, it was the Ninevites. We talked about a few weeks ago, like they're just how awful they were. They would decapitate their, their captives and put their heads in, in piles outside the city walls. Nineveh had piles of human skulls sitting there. They had people on sticks rotting out in the hot sun. Like, to, to exp like these are people they, cap they captured. When they would lead them out of captivity, they would lead them with fish hooks. They'd put hooks through their bodies and lead them along the way. They would dismember them. They would take out their eyes. They'd cut their ears off. They'd rip their tongues out. They would cut arms and hands off simply because they could. And this is the people that God calls Jonah to go and preach to that if they don't turn... They're, they're going to be destroyed. But God says, if you will turn, I'll have mercy on you. And so these impregnatory psalms, although they are kind of sometimes like, whoa, easy, David, you have to understand the raw emotion that he's feeling. Like, these are my, these are my countrymen. Like, these are my, my own people are being destroyed. God, you promised that you would watch over us. And God did. God withheld. But he also used these people a lot of times to, to be his instrument of judgment upon Israel as they walked away from God. Jesus himself quoted some of the imprecatory Psalms. John chapter 2, John chapter 15. But he also instructed us to love our enemies and pray for them. Not only did he instruct us, he showed us upon the cross where he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So Jesus taught us, not only preached it, but but showed us. The New Testament makes it clear that our enemy, however, is not physical, it's spiritual, doesn't it? So when we're talking about the imprecatory Psalms and praying these things in, it's not a physical thing that we're praying. Although David was, this is something that we're praying against a spiritual enemy. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 talks about how, how this is a spiritual battle that we're in. It's not simple to pray the imprecatory Psalms against our spiritual enemy. That God, that you would take down the devil. In his cohorts, like, destroy whatever stronghold is over San Clemente. Lord, whatever demon activity is in this town, which there is. This is a dark place. As beautiful as San Clemente is, the rolling hills, the insane houses, there is a darkness over this place that can only be characterized as satanic. Beauty on the outside, but dead inside. Um... Jesus taught us that we should also pray with compassion and love, even thanksgiving for people who are under the devil's influence. That we should desire their salvation. After all, God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. 
Above all things, we should seek the will of God in everything we do, including our emotion. When we're wronged, that we leave the ultimate outcome to the Lord, that God, you're the one who will defend me. You're the one. It's not up to me to right the wrong, right? Oh man, I wish I was the instrument of righting all wrongs sometimes, like with a bat. <laughs> um, but that's not how it goes. I'm not a super angry guy, and I'm just, you know. Anywho, the bottom line is that the imprecatory Psalms communicate a deep yearning for justice, is what they're asking for. Written from the point of view of those who had been mightily oppressed. And God's people have the promise of divine vengeance. He says, will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. God's going to set things right. And I know in, the, in these recent days, man, there is so much anger. You can, you can doom scroll just angry rants for days. And our anger can lead us and it can build up to a point where we let it, we let it get us off of mission and what God has set us on mission for. Our lives are not set on cruise control of joy and happiness. We are set on mission, knowing that we have an enemy who's coming against us and we're sent on mission to see souls saved. Like anger can get you off mission. Circumstance can get you off mission. It doesn't mean that it's not right to have anger. However, sin can take hold and bitterness can set in. And what David is proclaiming and what he's praying is God, do what you said you would do, and I believe that you are just. And I believe that you will and that you can. He says, for you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you, verse 4, but boastful shall not stand, the boastful shall not stand in your sight. He says um, in verse 11, but let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those who also love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous with favor. You will surround him as with a shield. David's reminded that as angry as I am, I know that God's going to take care of it. It's God who, is, is, who hates sin even more than I ever could. It's God who, who every day is saying, like, sin is not okay. It's never okay. It's not that God sweeps things under the rug and just forgets them. It's that God is long-suffering. And aren't you glad that God is long-suffering with you? Aren't you glad that God waited for you? Aren't you glad that God, in his patience and in his kindness, waited for you to come to him so that you could have eternity with him? And he sought after you with long-suffering. And so although we, we pray, God, may justice be served. Lord, may your justice come. It will. But it's in God's hands and God's time, according to his sovereign will. And that's what the imprecatory Psalms teach us. Psalm chapter 6 says, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled, for my soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver me, O save me, for your mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. My eyes waste away because of grief. 
It grows old because of my enemies. And then it all changes. Look at verse 8. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. There's a shift, isn't there? It's like two people writing two different psalms. But this psalm is one of seven designed for repentance. It's designed as a, uh, for the people of God to come as a call back to the Lord. Because it's thought that this, this grief was brought upon, uh, brought upon David by his own sin. Something that he had done. Look, notice what it says in verse 1. Do not rebuke me or chasten me, God. Like, have mercy on me, he's saying. Slow, like, slow down. I know, you, I know I deserve it, but God, would you just, I'm, you're merciful, so let's hold on a second here. Before you destroy me, like, let's talk. Let's have a conversation. Let's, but then it all changes when he's suddenly emboldened, and he says, all my enemies, like, get out of here. Depart. It's interesting, isn't it? Because both of these are conditions of the soul. David's condition here, he says, I can't stop crying. I can't stop crying. He says, I'm crying so much. He uses like this poetic alliteration that like, I've set my bed afloat like Winnie the Pooh. Remember when he's eating the honey jar and then all of a sudden it's, it's, everything's floating and he's like stuck in a jar. In a jar. Um, man, that brings such joy to my heart. Okay, he says, it's like that. Like I'm crying so much that my bed is floating. I, I, I'm like soaked here because I just can't stop. Every night I, I lay down on my bed and I just, I can't stop crying. Can't stop crying. I can't cry anymore, he says. My eyes, I've cried so much that my eyes like are breaking down. My body's breaking down. And, and we're, he's talking about a condition that he was having. He says, my body is weak. Like I'm weak in my bones. Like I used to be strong. Suddenly everything's breaking down. My, I'm having an outward struggle physically, but I'm also like emotionally just destroyed. God, would you be merciful to me? But then he confidently like stands up to his enemies. It's as if as David has poured himself out to the Lord, that the Lord has filled him back up. But how did David get to the bottom? These are two questions we want to answer and we'll be done tonight. How did David get to the bottom? And how did he get back to this place of confidence? In verses 1 and 2, he says, I'm weak and I'm sick. He had trouble physically. And even deeper than that, his soul was troubled. And, and perhaps it was from a sin. We know that David was engaged in, in multiple like big sin type things. Uh, they're written down for us in the book of 1 and 2 Samuel. But it was later, perhaps this was later in his life when he wrote this. It was when he had to flee Jerusalem because of his son Absalom. David was old and sick and unable to handle all the complex responsibilities of the kingdom. And so Absalom used that as a selling point to steal the kingdom from his dad. So things are not going well in his life because of maybe the effects of sin. And some of those, like three of them tonight are or one, David left and he fled Jerusalem another time when Saul had snapped. Like Saul had lost it and was bent on killing David. Remember he had thrown spears at David while he was playing his harp and playing worship music. Saul took out a spear and took out a sword and tried to kill him. And he's like, that's it. Like this guy is off his rocker. 
I am running for my life. And so he takes off running and he gets to the priest, uh, Ahimelech, and he tells him, I need food and I need a weapon. I, I'm on urgent business for the king. I left so quickly I didn't pack any food and I don't even have a sword. Um, so if you could help me out, that'd be great. The, the priest gives him the showbread and the only sword in the place was the sword of Goliath. He's, and he's like, it's, you know, kind of a on display, kind of a, you know, museum type thing. Like, you're part of the hits around here. And here's one of the things, like the sword. And so he lies to this guy. But in the, in the shadows was a guy named Doeg. And he saw the whole thing. And he was loyal to King Saul. And he wanted to raise his status. And so when Saul and his leaders together came together, Doeg tells Saul where David was. And Saul brings the whole of the priesthood, about 80 people, in front of him. And he orders the men to kill them. And all of his men refuse. Like, we're not killing God's priests. Like, are you crazy? No way. We're not doing that. But Doeg takes out his sword and he kills 79 of them. One escapes and takes off running. He finds David. He tells him what happened. And when David hears it, it breaks him. And he says, it's my fault. I am responsible because in my flesh, I lied instead of trusting in the Lord to take care of me. It's on me. I'm responsible for these men's death. Perhaps it was at this point when he writes this, this down, but perhaps it was another one where Saul had been chasing David for years. He's running all over the place. He's living in a cave with 400 dudes in a, in a cave. He hasn't slept on a bed in years. His pillow has been a rock. It smells. It, it's, there's like all the guys who are like, we're with you, David. We're all criminals and people you don't want to hang out with, right? Like everyone wants friends, but like to an extent, like I want certain kinds. You know what I mean? Like, I'll be your friend. You're like, not, not, not that bad. Like I want friends, but like not that bad. The kid in the corner was always like doing this. We're like, we know what you're doing. Like, we're not stupid. You have one finger and you're doing this. We know what you're doing. You're picking your nose. Like, we're not dumb. Uh, kid. Anywho, <laughs> you guys didn't all homeschool? Do you remember that? There's always like one kid. All right. There was like four in my class and I wasn't friends with any of them from a distance. Like, don't touch me. Anywho, David. <laughs> Sometimes I think we're a little too honest with each other on these nights. <laughs> Saul had been chasing David for years. So he said in his heart that there was no hope for him. The Bible tells that he said in his heart, there's no hope for me. And he was done. He says, the only thing that I can do, the only thing left for me to do is go live among the Philistines. So David did. He went to the enemy of Israel. He began to live with them. Listen, God had promised David, you will be king. If God promises that you'll be king and you're not, you are invincible. Like you could skydive, toe in surf, swim with sharks with no cage because you are invincible. If, you're, if God promised you're going to be king and you're not, nothing's going to happen to you. That was the point. And David's like, it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go live with the Philistines. And there came a point where David and his men came to fight and kill the nation of Israel. Like they had a standoff and there's David with his troops to fight against the very people that God had called him to rule. That's backslidden. That's backslidden. Perhaps that is the point where he wrote this. That's a low point in his life. 
because he listened to his heart rather than the Lord. If the Bible says one thing and your heart says another thing, your heart is wrong. Your heart is wrong. If you're like, well, it's okay because we love each other. Your heart is wrong. The Bible is right. Every time. Do you know that you're, you, inside of you, you are actually, because of sin, bent on your own destruction because of sin. Because your heart longs for what is sinful a lot of times. It longs for what it wants, not what it needs, and not what is best for it. And so it will destroy you. Crazy. And so we, he followed his heart instead of the Lord. Or maybe the third one, I think one of the greatest hits of David that we all remember is his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. Um, it says in that story that David was, it was a time where kings were at war, but David did not go to war. He stayed back. He went up into his room, take a little stroll out on the balcony, and just so happened to be a woman bathing just outside the court. And David began to think, began to look, began to look more, found out what her name was, brought her home, slept with her, got her pregnant, and then hatched a plan to murder her husband. It was a real low point in David's life. And the Lord told him, not only like, did you sin in so many ways, but the child that, you're, that she's bearing is going to die. Not going to make it. Because David was looking at something he wasn't supposed to, and he was somewhere where he shouldn't have been. It's crazy. David in the Bible is the greatest hero like, of all time. In Israel, it's all about David. King David, dude. It's, he is the man. The Bible says he was the man after God's own heart. He wrote these psalms that we love. Psalm 23, hello. It's amazing. Number one, my favorite. Homeschool high five. I have it memorized. Uh, <laughs> which many of you do as well. Do you know that the heroes of the Bible made huge mistakes? Do you know that God said that he's a man after his own heart? Because David was a man who was after the heart of God. Man, it's such a blessing. and It's so comforting to know that God loves you and he loves me no matter what stupid thing we do. If you're like, man, I am in here by like, I'm just hoping that, that God will be merciful for a second and maybe I can work my way back into like this whole Christian thing because I've been doing some things that I know are bad. I know I've been doing all the junk and I'm just kind of like hiding out and eventually like I'll, I'll tell people my name and then eventually like I'll, I'll like pray for someone. And like I'm going to work my way back into this church and like hide out and, and, and like maybe then God will like accept me. I'm going to serve in children's ministry, you know, or whatever. And then, and then God will, you know, it'll be okay again. You have a wrong view of the grace of God. That's wrong. God says, come as you are. I love you. Watch me wash you of your sin, past, present, future. You're a son. You're a daughter. You're mine. You're like, you are part of the family of God. Like, it's crazy. You don't have to work your way back in. You've always been a son. You've always been a daughter. You just walked away and did some stupid stuff. And it's not like you murdered anybody, hopefully. Like, so if you haven't done that, there's hope for you tonight. Like David did. Did some horrible things. He was responsible for the death of 79 people. 
The guy lived among the enemy and sought to fight against God's people. Didn't trust the Lord. Like, so if you're here tonight, like, man, I've been, I'm sinning. So did everybody else. But if there's grace for him, there's grace for you. If there was a savior enough for David, there's a savior enough for you. The point is, the difference between some people and David is that David repented and said, God, I am a sinner. Forgive me. He accepted his responsibility. He accepted the fact that I did something stupid and I accept the very fact that, God, I have sinned. I've done it. There's no hiding it. I repent. I turn. Some people never do that. And they just keep on going. It's crazy. God's super good like that. We know that sin always troubles the soul. It leads us to a place of weeping and suffering because it cannot deliver what it promises. But here's, where does it turn? It like turns here. He's like, I'm crying. I can't stop. I like, I'm crying. My bed's floating. My eyes are bloodshot. Like I'm sick inside. Like, Lord, help me. Then you read verse eight and he's standing in confidence and he's like, depart from me. all you workers of iniquity. For the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. What happened? What's the difference? He went to a time of prayer and came out confident. He went through a time of prayer with great suffering and came out with great confidence. How? Number one, he prayed. Like, he prayed. He spent time in prayer with the Lord. Where he just allowed God to minister to him personally. We... It's super good to be connected in community, but there's also this aspect of our relationship with God where solitude is incredibly important. Solitude with you in the Lord and in him alone. Like you can get a lot from community, a lot from fellowship. I hate, you can get a lot from that. But, but at some point you are gonna be alone and you need to learn to be alone with God. Solitude where you are hearing directly from the voice of, of, of the Lord to you. There's solitude that's needed, and that's what David did. He sought the Lord by himself. He, he went and departed, and as he prayed and prayed to the Lord, God ministered to him and strengthened him. Um, he focused on prayer, but his focus also, look at verse 2. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chase me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. Look at verse four, return, O Lord, deliver me. O save me for your mercy's sake. There's an aspect of God's nature, which we talked about, that there is a hatred towards sin and God judges sin. And David understands that part of God and his justice and all of that and what he deserved, but he chooses to focus on the mercy of God. David looks towards the way in which God has provided that his wrath is poured out, but he can still have relationship with a sinner. For David, it's a little more complicated with the sacrificial system. But for us, it's Jesus. For us, it's Jesus. That we can look towards the mercy of God, and God has provided a way in which we can experience the grace and mercy of God. Although we are imperfect and we are sinful, we can still have relationship with God because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Because Christ has made a way. The judgment of God was poured out on Jesus who had the sins of the world placed upon him so that he could be or so that he could pour out his mercy on us. And that's when verse 8 he comes and he says depart from me all you workers of iniquity. Who is his enemy at this point? 
is it Goliath? Like, is Goliath there? And he's like, get out of here, Goliath. Um, like, who's standing in front of him? I don't know. I think it's himself. Where he's like, I don't do that anymore. That's the flesh. That's the old me. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Like, I don't do that anymore. That's what I used to do, but not anymore. As I look at the grace and the mercy of God and what he's, he has provided for me through the, through, through the blood of Jesus Christ, depart from me. I don't do that anymore. I'm a new creation in Christ. So we consider tonight the cross. As we focus on the cross, we have no greater picture for us than the mercy of God. And so we say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Because of the cross, I'm a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. I've been crucified with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. The desires of all that, that is this crucified with him. I'm a new creation. I walk in the newness of life. And so we consider the cross. Last thing, in chapter 7, verse 11, it says, God is just is a just judge, right? Doesn't this seem like an emotional book? It goes from like justice to like, have mercy, like just up and down, <laughs> up and down. Doesn't seem like your day. Uh, but here he is in chapter 7, last thing, God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. He also prepared for himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. That's a scary picture of God, isn't it? Um, and then he says, behold, the wicked bring forth iniquity. Yes, the con and he conceives trouble and brings forth falsehood. He made a pit and dug it out and, he f and has fallen into the ditch which he made. His trouble shall return upon his own head and his violent dealings shall come down on his own crown. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness, and I will sing praises to the name of the Lord Most High. How can God both love the world, right, John 3, 16, and hate the wicked at the same time? The emphasis here is that God expresses his anger at sin every day. So he doesn't have to summon a special court to judge sinners. He allows sinners to reap the sad consequences of their sin day by day, right? That's why he said they dig a pit and they fall into it themselves. Their work of divine retribution is in this world, um, and nobody can, can escape it. Like, it's going to happen. The Bible says your sin will find you out. Sin has consequences. It always does. But look at Saul. Saul sought to kill David with both arrow and sword, and ultimately it came back on himself. He was killed with both arrow and sword. Pharaoh ordered the death of all babies to be drowned in the Nile, and his whole army drowned in the Red Sea. Haman built gallows for Mordecai, and he himself was hanged on it. The point is, is that God will right all wrongs. Someday, you can read about it in the book of Revelation. God is just. So don't let your anger drive you to madness. Trust in the sovereign hand of God. God is working in this world. And don't, don't imagine that his, his long suffering is his approval of anything that's going on. God in his grace and in his mercy is long-suffering. And he desires that no man should perish, but all will come to repentance. But there will come a day when God will write all wrongs. If he didn't, then he wouldn't be God. And so God is both love 